That just happened like three weeks ago. And even, you know, if you're imprisoned by money, it's not money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. This is message three in a series that I don't know will go how long. Um, We've had a couple of weeks in between the last one. You can get all of these messages online, and if you miss them, I encourage that you do so, encourage you to do so, because they are contiguous. The one, you know, runs off the other, runs off the other, and it's a whole package. And if you only get, you know, this message here and this message here, um, you're really doing yourself a disservice and you can very easily could go away with uh, the wrong understanding of what our motives are here at faith, what my motives and intentions are in teaching on this subject that was so important to Jesus. And I've mentioned this, I think, in each week thus far that I've done this because it's so mind-blowing, is that Jesus spoke on money more than any other subject in Scripture. As I said when I first mentioned that to you that we're here I didn't believe that and so I had to kind of research it myself and I was somewhat aghast because it is true well I want to jump for the moment before we get into our text for today which will be from Malachi is to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament hundreds and hundreds of years separated from uh, what we're going to talk about in the Old Testament today and the book of Hebrews is almost exclusively, actually, no, it's fine. it is entirely about Jesus and Jesus' superiority to anyone and everything. So when we come to the last chapter of that book, what I'm going to read is just this list that, that the writer of Hebrews presents in what seems like almost a pretty disjointed stream of consciousness. But obviously the Lord thought that it was important enough that he would include it because all the scriptures are inspired by God. Meaning everyone is just as valid as the next and just as true because it is superintended by his spirit. Well, in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning verse 1, just I'm going to abbreviate this to talk about it in list form. This is what the writer is finishing up with after talking about how awesome and great Jesus is. He says, let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated. Marriage is to be held in high honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. And then this is where, again, it just there's like no logical flow of connection here as far as I can tell. And then the writer says, and make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Meaning, this idea of money and finances and economics and our view of it is a deeply seated issue of character. It's not just a simple matter of income versus outgo. It is a deep matter of character. Well, then the author continues saying, being content with what you have, for he himself, that is Jesus, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Well, without saying it directly, 
the Spirit of God tells us that the very issue that ranks at the top of the list for commandeering our thoughts, emotions, our energies, and our plans is not an economic one. It is, as I said, a spiritual one. Twelve chapters into the book of Hebrews, which, as I said, is, has, has focused entirely on the superiority of Jesus and also the superiority of Jesus over even the hallowed system of Jewish worship called Judaism, he throws together this last-minute reminder of the priorities of being a follower of that one, Jesus, who is superior to everyone and everything. Now, it's been 10 years since I last spoke on this topic that is so consuming of humanity's thoughts, worries, concerns, and energy. And so as I begin this morning, I just want to throw this out there. As you're sitting there, I just want you to think for yourself for a moment. If I asked you, what are the top three in your life? What are the top three common worries, concerns, aggravations, arguments, or conversations about? What might they be? Top three. Well, for most Americans, money is on that list in place one, two, or three. And in most surveys, comes in number two. What I'm going to read you is right off the web, so we know it's true. It's not from a, no, it's from a banking site, actually. It's, it's, a, it's a, an ad, actually. Um, it's not from a Christian site. It's from a banking site, and I'm quoting now. Fighting over money with your better half? Join the club. Finances are the leading cause of stress in a relationship, according to a survey released by SunTrust Bank. Money really touches everything. It impacts people's lives, said Emmett Burns, brand marketing director for SunTrust. He continues, Money and stress do seem to go hand in hand for many Americans, whether they're in relationships or not. A study released by the American Psychological Association found almost three-quarters of Americans are experiencing financial stress at least some of the time, and nearly a quarter of us are feeling extreme financial stress. And it is for that reason, not to mention that it is such a big part of the teachings of our Lord and Savior, but it really is my goal in this series to bring the light of God's wisdom to, to, to the surface on this subject that is so life-depriving and worry-generating for the vast majority of us. By way of recap, going back now to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, the prophet Haggai, in chapter 1, verse 9, this is what we read. This goes back to, the, I think, my beginning message two weeks ago, or, yeah, two sermons ago. He says, you look for much. Now, he's, he's speaking for God to God's children, Israel. He says, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own home. And what we saw in the book of Haggai was an unfortunate example of what happened to the people of God in his day in the Old Testament. Now, as soon as I say that, 
not an uncommon reaction on our part might be, well, I'm just not convinced that something that happened centuries ago in an entirely different culture, a different part of the world, in an Old Testament economy, etc., etc., has any real relevance or connection to me living in a New Testament epoch in 2017. Well, let's keep in mind that we who live in 2017 need to take down the wall of separation, as I'll call it, that we often erect between the Old and the New Testaments. Because as we're told in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired by God. Not just the things that Jesus said, not just the New Testament, but all things that are written therein are directly from God and therefore are profitable. So our text for this morning follows the book of Haggai chronologically. And even though it's only one book away from Haggai, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament, even though it's, it's that close to it, it's over a hundred years later from the events that we talked about in Haggai. And so consequently, over that hundred year period, the revival that started in Haggai's day all but came to an end and then eventually petered out over that next century. And the problem was that they were feathering their own nests at the expense of God's work. And so, as I said, that revival that came through God's strong but harsh and hard loving discipline to them had once again gone by the wayside and God's people had lapsed into old patterns, old habits, and old ways. Isn't that the way we all tend to be? For the moment, we can be struck by conviction, true Holy Spirit conviction, and we repent, and we can even maybe be hopefully even excited about it. And then too often after a season, what happens? We find ourselves right back into the same old dirt, into the same old ruts. But God in his faithfulness and his love for us is faithful to remind us with increasing intensity until we turn back to him and until we turn back to his purposes for us. So the Lord now uses the next prophet there called Malachi to remind God's people once again by way of rebuke once again for being his people in appearance only. Now, mind you, it's not like they were irreligious. Oh, no, they were as religious as they had always been, but it was a mechanical devotion. And it was devoid of integrity. It was devoid of spiritual vitality. And it was devoid of, honest to goodness, what God would call real worship. And through Malachi, God's going to point out that their very decline as a culture, and yet bringing it right home into their own backyards, directly resulted from the habitual failings of God's people. And we need to think about them as they relate to us today. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say... How have you loved us? (laughs) First issue, right out of the gate. They're going to pick a fight 
with the Almighty. And they're going to take issue with his own words that he loves them. They disagree. Second issue. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Well then, if I'm father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord of hosts. Who's he saying this to now? He's saying it to his people Israel, yes, but specifically to the priests. To you, O priests, who despise my name. But what do they say? How have we despised your name? They disagree. The Lord answers, you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. And what do they say? How have we defiled you? They disagree. God answers, you present the blind for sacrifice. Is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Now, now remember, God stipulated very categorically how things were to be done because everything contained in it a message about the coming Messiah and about the nature and the character of God. So you dare not mess with any of that. And they knew that to bring a suitable sacrifice, it was to be an unblemished animal, a perfect animal. And they were bringing the junk. <laughs> God says... Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? And again, I want to underscore that these God's people were still very religious. They were still going through all the motions of the special people of God. But they had grown so apostate, that means so far away from where they were supposed to be with the Lord, that they convinced themselves that their worship hadn't changed. Their worship was was just as holy and pleasing and blessed by the Lord, even though they were now doing everything in their own way. Remember, God was very specific on the way he was to be worshipped, on the way, if you will, service was conducted. He spelled out all those things and said, this is the way it has to be done, not the way you want it to be done. And now what was the root issue that caused them to be so self-consumed and and self-absorbed and self-deluded as to bring the Almighty rubbish as their offerings? Well, at the very heart of it, at the core of it, was the love of money. They didn't want to waste their prime holdings on God. So instead of bringing him the best of their flocks, they brought him their leftovers. Remember, we're talking now about an agrarian society. We're talking about farming. We're talking about raising cattle, livestock, and fowl, and, and uh, uh, gardens, and vineyards, and fruit trees, and all that. So, so all of that represents money. Bring the very best just to burn it up and see it, go, literally, see it go up in smoke. Ah, so they brought God the leftovers. They brought the crippled. They brought the ailing. And when God calls them on it, again, they argue with God about his assessment of it. That was the first complaint. God's next complaint is to the priests. Now, the priests are the priests of the day today and the pastoral leadership and church leadership. 
This is what we read. For the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge, meaning preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from God's mouth, for he's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of my people, you've turned aside from the way, and you have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. The bottom line is the priests were not representing the pastors, were not representing the leaders of the church of God's people, were not representing God accurately. Is there any relevance in that today? And then God sets out to illuminate their wretchedness by highlighting for them the condition of their uh, marriages as he con- continues to rattle off the charges against them. Malachi 3, 7. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And that's not, oh, well, how shall we return? No, this is a disingenuous, insincere reply. Again, they disagree. Return to you. What are you talking about? God says, you dare ask, how shall you return? Will a man rob God? Yet, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? They disagree. And the Lord says, in tithes, that means 10% of what they had, and offerings, anything else given beyond and above and beyond the tithe. And before they can work up more self-righteous indignation, God lays on them what is the timeless principle here, because I see no evidence in the whole Word of God that it has ever been rescinded. That is, the, the command for a tithe has never been rescinded, unlike the many, many dietary laws and the many civil laws that were enacted for place and time, removed by God not by human decision. God says in verse 9 of chapter 3, you are cursed with a curse. Because despite your impression and your assessment, you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Hmm. So what's the solution? The solution is verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so so that there may be food in my house. So what's the answer to removing God's hand of discipline upon them? Because that's what all of this was. That's what all of it was in Haggai's day. It is to begin honoring him with their possessions, their property, and their money. That's the first step. You see, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the degradation of their culture really flowed out of that heart core problem. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And then God says something that he says nowhere else in the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word. 
he says, bring forth your tithes and your offerings and test me now. The creator of the universe says, test me now in this, says the Lord, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Okay, what does that promise mean that is presented in metaphorical form? Well, remember back again to two books earlier in Haggai, what happened in Haggai's day when, again, they were padding their nest, so to speak, and they were, their solution to their shortfalls, which was chronic, was that they would somehow maybe plant more produce, plant more vineyards, they plant more apple trees, they try and uh, get their, their uh, flocks to conjugate greater or whatever, trying to make ends meet, picking up more hours to put it into our day's context. But no matter what they did, they could not get ahead. And why? God's been telling them why. We can read it repeated by Jesus up in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 6.33. He says, this is happening to you because you are not seeking first the kingdom of God and my righteousness. That's why all this is happening to you. And again, in the context of a farming culture, God says he changed. He, the creator, the one who controls everything, he changed the weather patterns to thwart their efforts at successful farming. So the failing, or at least the inadequacy of their businesses, so to speak, of their livelihood, wasn't just merely, oh boy, tough coincidence. It wasn't that they lived in a, in a, a geoclimatic you know, place that was not opportune for farming. It wasn't that they had poor soil. It wasn't just dumb bad luck. It was because they were not worshiping God as he demanded, as he deserves, giving him what God himself had stipulated that they were to bring forth their tithes and offerings as a vital part of their worship. And so God's very own hand was against them. Just by way of reminder, Haggai chapter 1. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and earth has withheld its produce. I called. See, this isn't just dumb luck or coincidence. I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine and on the oil and what the ground produces and even on men and on cattle and on all the labor of your hands. I am frustrating you trying to get ahead until you align your purposes and your priorities with me because that is where the fullness of life is to be found. The lesson of Haggai's day, as I said, had been forgotten within a hundred years. What lessons have we as Americans forgotten? And more importantly, what lessons have we as Christ followers forgotten just in our past hundred years? That takes us to 1917. <laughs> First thing I thought about that instantaneously jumped out was the war to end all wars. The first one. And then we had a second war to end all wars. And then after that, we had the Korean War, and then the Vietnam War, and then everything now is going on in the Middle East, etc., etc. What have we learned? Oh, we, you know. In love, 
Now God says to his people yet again that if his people bring in their tithes and their offerings, unlike what the people of Haggai's day experienced, God would do the exact opposite. The creator of the universe promises to do the opposite of what he did to Haggai. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Verse 11, chapter 3 of Malachi. Then, here's what I will do. I will rebuke one he calls the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant, though, against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it's vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His charge and that we have walked in the morning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and they escape. Israel had so declined and degenerated that, guess what? Nothing new under the sun. They started calling evil good and good evil. And those who were the most corrupt, the priesthood, they were looking at them with great respect and everything was turned upside down. God says, I will rebuke the devourer. And then he describes some of that. Well, according to what he describes, the devourer means anything and everything that deprives you of the necessities of your life and of having bounty. You're wondering why you're working harder and you're enjoying it less and your take home is less and less. It's because I have set myself against you to try and bring you back to me. You're so far away. And it's harsh and it's hard, but it is loving because there is such freedom in doing things my way. And so if you just come back to me and you start honoring me as I demand with the tithes and your offerings, I will do this. You're going to have your grapes out there and your grapes are going to be going. And where insects usually come in and start ravaging half of your crop, as you've been experiencing, or mold starts on the fruit early on and they start dropping their grapes prematurely and you get like a tenth of what you'd normally harvest, I'm going to put an end to all of that. Where there's been drought, I'm going to bring the rains down. And I'm just going to make plants just grow maybe even quicker and produce more fruit. And you're going to have more fruit than you know what to do with. Which again relates in an agrarian society to money. I am pledging to do that to you. And he says, put me to the test. (laughs) Okay. And the reason I, I get worked up about this is because by God's grace, from very close to the day Barbara and I became followers of Christ in our naivety, we were taught about tithing and honoring him in that way. So that is honestly all we've known our entire lives. Didn't matter what our income levels were, and we lived, according to the government, below poverty for quite a few years, especially in those days of seminary and all of that. And it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, that stinking tithe. Well, we better write out the check because if we don't, 
Marva, you know, he's going to get it one way or another. It was, it was, it was just, it wasn't even second thought. It was like, yep, get our tithe, boom, get that out there now. Electric bills, this and that, and this and that. You know, one year when I was in seminary in particular, I went through, the end of the year, I went through our income versus outgo, and there was an $8,000 difference, meaning we should have been $8,000 in debt, and yet we were debt-free. I don't know. It's not because I balanced the checkbook. I've never balanced the checkbook in my life. That's Barb's job. Hmm. No, well, it would have, anyway. All the things, there's so many things over the years. If you've read The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity, there's a lot of stories in there about God's miraculous provision from the, 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 the minute kinds of things that are so inconsequential. You know, you think God of the universe doesn't have time for a set of six drinking glasses. And that story's in there, all the way to the, the ridiculous of getting us through the most expensive seminary in the country in the day never knowing where the next quarter's tuition was coming from. My not working at all. Barb only working part-time as a waitress in northwest suburb, uh, the suburbs of Chicago. You mean you were tithing then? Yes. Why wouldn't we? Did I assume that the next quarter's tuition would be taken care of? I, not from the standpoint of, I'm going to write out a check in faith here and hand it over to the registrar. No, I would never do that. Some people do. To me, there's a very thin line between presumption and faith. And I just figured if the tuition isn't there for whatever reason, I'll have to lay out for a quarter, pick up some work somehow or another, and we'll get it done in God's timing. But it never happened. It never came. And we graduated debt-free. But it's the smaller stories that honestly trip my trigger, like our electric range. My brother, brother is an elect, uh, appliance repairman in Chicago. So I'm always calling him about various things or another thing, one thing or another, about appliances. And he says, you know, because I call him like, okay, what's a good washing machine to buy? What's a good refrigerator to buy? He goes, they're all garbage. They're like, you know, there's really only like three companies in the entire world, and everything that's out there is made by one of these three companies. And most of them are in China. So he said, shop the warranty. They are programmed. It's called programmed obsolescence. It's not a new idea. But they just have now greater technology. He said, your appliances are set to last maybe five years. And he said, and then to repair them with the way electronics are and everything else, he says, it's usually not even worth, the re- worth, the, worth it repairing them. So shop that. Well, we buy an electronic, uh, electric range. And that electronic range just went and went and went and on and on. And we're by the five-year, the 10-year, the I don't know, I don't know how many, 15-year, maybe 20-year. And we were switching over our kitchen to uh, natural gas and everything. And so we ended up giving the electric range away. There was nothing wrong with it. It was still working fine. And I know that it served that person for years. This is not coincidence. We have a dryer in our upstairs bathroom right now, which is our laundry room as well. And I said to Barb two weeks ago when I started preparing this, uh, I said, "Hun, can you, I'm thinking that we moved here with our dryer that's upstairs. Can you remember? (laughs) 
We're talking 27 years ago. She's like, no, I don't remember. I go, no, I don't either. But I think it is. And it's still going strong. And it's ugly. Because it's white. And it's boring. It doesn't talk to me. Okay? It doesn't play music when I open the door. Right? And the door, you know, you kind of got to, you have to kind of hold it because the thingy that holds it from falling, yeah, that was long gone, you know, decades ago. I don't know. Nothing wrong with the dryer. All it does is dry clothes. Go figure. I don't know how long that thing's going to go. We did have a washer that was uh, starting to give signs after uh, several minor repairs by yours truly. Mm-hmm. And a little help from my brother on the phone. And Barb and I went away for a weekend with the kids. And this was when we were, uh, this was many, many years ago. We were pretty new to faith. And we came home from that little weekend jaunt, whatever it was. Walked into our restroom laundry room and there was a brand new washer sitting there, all hooked up. And we're like, huh, <laughs> go figure. I don't know. Right? Put me to the test. You mean you were tithing even when you came out here as a family of five and you were living in somebody's basement and you were trying to buy a repossessed home from the bank and they wouldn't they weren't about to give you a loan because of your pathetic income? Yeah, we were. And if you know that story, the bank ended up giving us the house on a handshake because they couldn't make the numbers work. And then they came out and saw the horrid shape and condition of the house that they didn't realize was that way. We never saw it. We bought it sight unseen on the inside because there were squatters living there. And the bank had to get them out first. So when the, the, we moved in, and we were thrilled. It's like, wow, look at this place. Look at the potential and everything else. Al Rancourt walks in, and he just goes, and he starts apologizing. He said, we had no, I had no idea this place was in this condition. And I'm like, what? <laughs> the upstairs was even worse, Al. He said, you're going to need more money to fix this place up. And gave us $20,000 more for remodeling on a handshake. And the stories go on and on. The pattern of Barbara and my Christian life, as I said, was that before we knew better, and I'm saying that a bit sarcastically, a little tongue-in-cheek, but before we knew better and before we had worked up all the Christian excuses for why we can't and we don't tithe, not at this point in our life, maybe one day, we, we just weren't there. And on my meager military salary, we learned to live with what you have to live on. Credit was odious to me because I grew up with a very financially irresponsible father. And so if we couldn't afford it, God would either provide it or we didn't need it. But the tithe came first. And we have never looked back. For this reason I say to you, Don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are not you worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field. How they grow, they do not toil nor spin, and yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow it's thrown into a furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Don't worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For even the pagans, the unbelievers, the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. There was never a time in our Christian lives when we have not tithed minimally as a starting point. And when we get up into the New Testament, as we will through this eventually, we see that Jesus, Jesus actually heightens the expectation. He doesn't reduce it. He certainly doesn't eliminate it. But he heightens it. That will make a lot more sense as we work our way up there. But oh, for the scourge of debt. Because debt is a taskmaster. And the Proverbs are full of counsel about getting into debt. And debt in and of itself is not sinful, okay? There are Christians who oh, any debt, all debt is sinful. No, no, it isn't. Okay. My hesitancy and even, even wanting to say that, though, is that everyone goes, Phew. no, no, no. As you'll see when we talk about it more next week, the debt that America and American Christians are in is absolutely sinful. And the reasons that Christian, one of the big reasons, I believe, that Christians don't even come close to doing what God requires is because they can't because they are paying out thousands of dollars a year for interest. And I don't mean on a house or a car in reasonability. But we'll get into more of that next week. And I'm also going to give, I hope, some practical ways to think about debt with a view toward getting out of debt, with a view toward being liberated from the shackle and the ball and chains that it are on the Christian. Because honestly, the tithing Christian today is rare in any, any and every church. And I'm not, I exclude the mainline churches and everything else. But in the Bible-believing church, 3% roughly of all Bible-believing Christians, tithe, 3%. That's three out of every 100. I'm kind of surprised it's that high. And that leads into all kinds of other repercussions for the local church and kingdom work and all of that. But again, this is all what waits us down the road. I want to leave you with this. Second Chronicles 16.9. It's a verse that I memorized with my children a bazillion years ago. I shared it one morning in a devotion with the VBS workers and everything else because I, I, I love the verse because of what it says. It's Second Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro 
throughout the ends of the earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. And I think, you know, I picture that. I mean, obviously, you know, it's an anthropomorphism. It's giving human characteristics to God so we can understand him better. Because God has all knowledge everywhere all the time. and all We know that. But you see God, it's like he's looking for, okay, here's Christendom. And I'm just looking for, er, oh, there's one. There's another one. Looking, looking, looking. Oh, there's one. And I, the creator of the universe who knows no limits and no bounds with the miraculous or anything else. It's all mine. I own it all. I am going to take particular note of you to strongly support you because your hearts are completely mine. And that's an awesome and spectacular place to live instead of in bondage to the credit master. Paul Halley, come on up and close our time. Remember that all of this, okay, is not to be a drive-by guilting. It is because our Creator is longing to be the God who He says He is for us. Put me to the test. I want to bless you, but I'm not going to bless you when you are in a state of abject rebellion. Well, let me know what I've done, Lord. Okay, here's what you did. Oh, come on. You've got to be kidding me. Next. And that was the heart of His people. He wants it to be a joy. And Barbara and I is giving. This isn't to pat myself on the back. Sorry, Paul. (laughs) This truly is not that. It is in the spirit of Paul when he says to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 9, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things that the God of peace might be with you. And I'm telling you that being where we are and where we have come from, from the days of poverty to anything but poverty, it's amazing and it has been joyful. And God loves each one of us. And that's why he deals so harshly with Haggai and through, or through Haggai and through Malachi and with us in our lives trying to bring us to that better place. Let me have you stand. Oh, one more thing. No. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord, I'm uh, heartbroken by this message, uh, hearing how disobedient and arrogant your people have been for many, many years, Lord, and that doesn't exclude us, unfortunately. So I pray, Lord, that uh, I'm encouraged by the message as well to hear how faithful you are never-ending, seeking us out and encouraging us, Lord, every day to follow you closer and how blessed we would be if we would obey those things. So, Lord, that's my prayer today, that we would be more obedient in uh, following the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.